0: When we work together, we approach things very differently and we fight quite a lot. But whenever the project hits the right spot, both of us kind of acknowledge that and realize that it's almost like in, in a puzzle when all the pieces kind of come together. That, that's when we both stop arguing and that's when you're like, okay, this feels right.
1: Welcome to Archonnex Sessions 1 to 1. I'm Amelia Taylor-Hochberg, and this week I'm speaking with the partners behind Family, Iwana Stanescu and Dongping Wong. Family's aesthetic has been described by the New York Times as a merging of pop culture and utilitarianism, and their practice has happily forged some non-traditional projects, such as a floating pool in New York's East River that filters the water around it, and designing a 50-foot volcano for Kanye West's Yeezus Tour. Juana and Dongping discuss their early days collaborating at Rex, what it takes to pitch their own projects, and how they've grown their practice. So, Alana and Dong, great to have you on Archonnex Sessions 1 to 1. Thanks so much for joining us from New York, correct? You are in your New York office?
0: Yes, we are. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. Oh, yeah, of course. Feeling a little bit closer to California. You're in LA,
1: located? Yes, we are based in Los Angeles, which usually means we're far away from the the epicenter of the architectural action. But did not
2: know that. Oh, weird. I always assumed for ever that Architect was here in New York. I just was like, oh, I've never come across you guys. Well, maybe
1: maybe we should just leave the mystery and, and have it be, <laughs> yes, we are also everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> <That's pretty> um, <laughs> but so how long have you guys been settled in New York?
2: I've been here since 2003, actually, but I'm from San Diego. So I I did the whole like first half of my life in California and then basically came here for grad school. So I've been here, I guess now 13 years. Mm.
0: Yeah, we pretty much met in New York at our first job here 10 years ago, actually.
1: It sounds really, really, really Almost creepy. Almost 10 years ago. Almost, <laughs> yeah. Six more
0: months. <laughs> Nine and a half.
1: You're going to celebrate the anniversary?
0: Uh, yeah, we actually are debating what to do. But yeah, so I, I lived on and off here for a while. And then I came back, when three years ago? Four years ago? Something like that. Three, four years in.
1: Four years in. And so the firm family, as it stands, is yourself, and a few other partners. I was wondering from the beginning, because the firm started as a collaboration between the two of you, how did you kind of grow the practice to include more people and take on more projects?
2: So it's, let's see, I'm trying to think of who we have now. We have, so Juan and I kind of run the office and then we've got five people that
1: work with us now,
2: I think, I'm trying to look Mm -hmm. out and see. Yeah, five. It, <laughs> we just grew Thank by God a Thank God for spring
1: break. Presumably because they're not all in the office with you, but they're...
2: Well, no, just because literally this week, we brought on a couple more people to help with the deadline. So I was kind of revising the count live. <laughs> gotcha. But it's actually funny because, you know, one of the reasons Juan and I decided to work together is at Rex, the bosses saw it much sooner, much before we did, that we worked really well together kind of off the bat. And um, so they would actually put us as a pair on different projects. Like we got moved around together all the time. I think even one of the bosses, I don't know if he came up to you or me, but he came up to Juana, I think, and and said, you guys have to be a little careful because you're actually kind of intimidating or scaring a lot of the other people on the team because you guys basically talk so well with each other that you almost <laughs> forget that you're supposed to be talking with a whole team of people, which is fair. Like We would just have this immediate kind of connection and I'm sure it was sort of impenetrable to a lot of other people. So that's actually been one of the things. I think we are sometimes conscious of it, sometimes not so conscious of it in the office that you know, there's other people that are working with us and depending on us to be clear about what we're talking about.
1: Like a two secret twin language of sorts. Yeah, something <laughs> like that.
0: <laughs> well, we actually just got off an interview now and we have a few after. And it's so, I find it always so difficult actually to interview people. Dong and I also have very different styles because the office is, is so small and everyone is, is such a big part of it that, that the fit has to be really right. Mm-hmm. And you know it's a rather flat office, so everyone has the right, not just has the right but but is expected to speak up and 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 run with stuff and and have probably more responsibility than than in your typical big office so it's it's not always easy, but we're actually we have a really good team of people that we're really really proud of so it's it feels really awesome. I would say it, it, it changed dramatically, at least for me. I don't know where Dong from. Because in the beginning, we did competitions and we did a lot of projects just on our own and or with friends. But the moment we start having actual employees and the team became bigger, things changed dramatically in terms of the responsibility one, one has to bear. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Hours, yeah. Yeah. Hours.
1: yeah. Well, especially to refer to what you spoke of before as having this language between the two of you, how to bring in more people into that language that can still understand that language, but maybe also make it accessible to a wider audience and as well as and simply do more work and, and make communication across those parties possible.
2: And I also realized, I think, slowly realizing that it's like, it's not always bad if me and Wana have to have our kind of like, like we... Secret language? <laughs> <laughs> Although, I've noticed like, for example, like there'll be moments where me and one will just kind of like walk out of the office and go for like a walk or go grab a coffee or something. And I think it's good that we sort of like have our secret language a little bit and then come back and, you know, you sort of need your own space every once in a while. And mm. it seems so.
0: Someone's
1: getting old. I'm getting
2: old. <laughs> I just want to, everybody leave me alone. <laughs> I'll be over here with my book. <laughs>
1: Well, I'm particularly interested in, in how smaller or at least initial partnerships that do work in the kind that you're describing where, you know, you pick up competitions, you do a lot of you know, unsolicited stuff that you're kind of building this image and this kind of style that you want to be working with and, and be representing of your firm. But then how to bring more people into that. And I'm wondering if you had from the outset the idea that this would grow to a certain size or is it just at this point you're going to keep it as big as you can, but are there dreams to make it even larger?
0: Well, I think it's not about the size of the office itself, but more about the kind of projects we want to do. And I actually just now we got off an interview and we were both, oh, we wish we could hire quite a few of these people. (laughs) But we're not necessarily quite there yet. But I think for us, well... We also have slightly different views here where Dom always was more interested in a bigger office, I think, versus I I like the intimacy of of a smaller office. But at the end of the day, I think it just comes down to the ability of doing the projects that we, of the scale that we really want to do. But we also learned, uh, of course, that it's a growing process. Like you can't just, you know, let's say even if you were to get a big project to just hire 50 people and then like expect it to work magically. I think we're still in a learning process in terms of how we want the office to be run, how we want it to feel and what we want it to mean for everyone who's working here.
2: Mm-hmm. I think, you know, what Juana was saying is we, I think the kind of projects we like to do, A, oftentimes they're kind of civic, but they're also larger, say cultural projects or even housing projects. And they're the kind of projects that, you know, you typically see a team of anywhere from, let's say, eight to 15 people or something kind of throughout the different parts of the project. And it's actually a, a the size of the project that Juana and I are probably most comfortable with. Basically based on our kind of professional training, we were always on projects like that, like teams of 10 to 20 kind of thing. Mm. And at the moment, it's, you know, we have a lot of small projects, all super interesting, but each person is either individually on a project or maybe there's two or oftentimes two people are on like three projects, you know, and because they're smaller, but also because our staff is small. In terms of the size of the office, like we were, we'd be very happy if we the entire of office was working on one large project, um, and it was just a ten-person office, for example. More conversely, you know, which is more what you see in the large offices, it's say like ten projects and there's ten people on each project in a, bit, a much bigger office. But like Juan was saying, I think it's just the scale and almost impact of the kinds of projects that we like that sort of necessitate a larger team.
0: That being said, though, I think we're we also vary. there's no danger for that yet. That but getting over a certain size. And I know I am at least concerned, and again, it's premature, (laughs) but making sure that we stay on track and are able to produce the kind of work that we want to produce and not grow just for the sake of growing.
1: Hmm. I also wanted to ask, this might be a little bit, you probably get this all the time, but I'm on your website currently, and I'm checking out other things on other tabs. And when I come back to the website, I suddenly (laughs) see all these dogs on the website. It's just dog. Is that a dog that is personal to either of you?
0: Yeah, Perry. He's my dog. He's named after Perry Street. Our office used to be on Perry Street in the West Village, which is a terrible reason to name anyone after that. But <laughs> he was uh, in that office. He was actually quite present. He he spent a lot of days and nights with us in the office. So he's very attached to everyone in the office. So he's he's a big part actually of the office culture in a way. <laughs> and that
1: comes through because he haunts the website.
0: our friends play lab they did the website and at first we we didn't obviously didn't ask for it so there was their kind of first it was burritos i think right yeah first it was burritos but the dog (laughs) is from san diego and very particular about burritos and they totally used
2: the wrong burrito so
1: (laughs) oh i have to ask what is the wrong burrito because i'm from la so i have to ask what is the san diego's wrong burrito i think
2: theirs just had too much stuff in it Mm, that's a a classic mistake yeah (laughs) which is fine it wasn't a bad burrito by any means
1: not a, I was like, if we're going to have a burrito, it has to be this very particular burrito.
0: And then they were like, but we also have Perry.
1: Yeah, yeah. well, it's perfect. We all have Perry. <laughs> well, it's very cute. It also really speaks to, or at least it, it reinforces the kind of mood of the site and the mood of the images that you guys kind of communicate yourselves through. And there's also something that I don't know if this has ever been, if you've ever heard this comparison before, but there is something in your projects that has a certain graphical similarity to bjarke Ingels group Mm -hmm. in that there's some of these and this is in no way a this is a complete generalization this is in no way like a comprehensive reading of your work but it's simply that there are a lot of these projects like the volcano and the plus pool that have this immediacy in their graphical identity that they're just this they they can be understood very simply through an icon they are not necessarily you know shiny architectural iconic projects necessarily but they have that legibility. I was wondering if that's something that you explicitly go for in your forms, in the, in the way that you actually build the forms of your architecture.
0: No. <laughs> well, wait. Let yeah, me. go ahead. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Please elaborate. We like, wait, wait,
0: wait. <laughs> were both going to jump up. No, no, no. Um, I think the one thing that we are very conscious of is, and we learned that er- early on with the pool, is just how basically to make the project accessible to people. With the pool specifically, we had to present, you know, the, the pool basically took off because people were really interested in it. That meant we kept talking about the pool to a bunch of people, but almost never to architects. So you had to talk to to the city, you had to talk to the community, you had to talk to swimmers. So very different types of, of groups of people and not your usual kind of architecture crowd. And I think that put us through a strong effort of, you know, just conveying what the project is about without any metaphor or kind of bullshit. But also I (laughs) think it's, I mean,
2: I also think it's like intuitively oftentimes it's kind of less strategic than that. We usually just, like I personally just like projects that read very simply and you kind of understand the basics of it right away. Like in the same way, I think like I really appreciate Bjarke's work for the same reason and a lot of my favorite projects, even if they don't look like a specific object or anything, you get the idea, the central idea really immediately from the architecture. Mm Mm-hmm. I think there is always, and I think that's something we do deliberately actually try for in terms of that we want our architecture always to be clear and simple and and actually welcoming and friendly. And oftentimes that leads to a form that's actually very, I guess, contained in a sense or iconic, maybe. It's rare that we set out to do that, but definitely through the process of design, I do notice that both Juan and I will start chipping away at things that overcomplicate stuff or make a form kind of less clear and kind of try to bring it down to something more essential
0: when we started working it was always very intuitive and we you know when you you, just start off early on you don't really have to necessarily articulate your work like obviously there was a bigger picture or thought behind it but you don't necessarily have to put it in words so then we realized that we have this body of work that has a common trait but it was very difficult for us to actually articulate we tried to do it on the website but in a way when we work together we approach things very differently and we fight quite a lot. But whenever the project hits the right spot, both of us kind of acknowledge that and realize it. it's almost like in in a puzzle when all the pieces kind of come together. That's when we both stop arguing and that's when you're like, okay, this feels right. And usually that's tied to the simplicity of the project. I think usually when it feels edited down enough that it starts making sense. That's when we both feel like, okay, this feels right. I think sometimes
2: our least favorite architecture whether it's coming from us or whether we see it say on the street or something is that kind of is that kind of work that almost like overfills your brain with stuff i don't know how to explain it like there's something about like the kind of work that really feels more like a breath or like an ease of something oftentimes that's our favorite kind of work that we arrive at or see and i don't know if that's just because we're like Stressed all the time, and we like seeing things that sort of, <laughs> you know, it's like I always say, like, my ideal is for <laughs> I have a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Fair um, but like, my ideal is for architecture to feel like you're at the beach kind of thing. Like, you want that kind of moment of simplicity, but also kind of clarity and ease in a lot of ways. And I think that ties well with having a kind of simple or direct form sometimes.
1: You also spoke in particular in regards to the Plus Pool project about speaking with a lot of non-architects to Mm. kind of inform the process of designing and and the representation of the project. Do you regularly work with other non-architectural or non-architect collaborators?
2: We do. Definitely not at the level that we do on Plus Pool. I mean, that's a very particular project and very exciting in that way, but we do. I mean, even beyond just obviously, like most of our clients are not architects, obviously, but a lot of the projects will have a, a world of people that are coming from non-architecture backgrounds oftentimes they are kind of creatively based whether it's fashion or design or music or something like that but we do work with a non a lot of non-architects and it's actually quite nice that way we prefer to actually
0: yeah i don't think we necessarily set out for that but i think it you know it just happened organically almost
2: it's also just I, not to sound arrogant, but it's more interesting for us just because we've been in the architecture world long enough you know plenty of architecture people <laughs> it's more interesting i think right. to learn about what other people are doing
0: But even on a on a simple professional level, we are I think just because we you know we we we're still learning how to run an office and what that means. We are trying to see how other creative businesses are doing it and just trying to learn from that. Whether it's about the structure of or the just like you know maintaining a creative level and a certain output and all of that. So we're trying to learn from
2: how other businesses are professionally as an industry architecture is definitely not particularly
1: inspiring. Interesting. Well, could you elaborate a little bit on that? Because I think a lot of people in the profession feel there is a a bit of an identity crisis at hand. So what exactly makes you feel like maybe the community isn't the most inspiring place to look?
2: Well, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, I don't want to put it out there that it's a community by any means. I think actually there's a lot of amazing people. I think it's, there's something about the structure of the profession at the at the moment and maybe not even at the moment maybe it's just a kind of classic architectural profession that you'll see other creative industries just leapfrogging and innovating a lot more and being much more flexible and a lot more fluid and architecture i think partially because of just what architecture is right it's it's buildings that you have to deal with with code with life safety with hazards with actually very complicated and real world things so you don't want it to be too Flight of fancy in that way, but at the same time, you know, you don't see you don't see a lot of let's say young innovation coming through architecture at a real level, maybe at an academic level. Again, talking about Biarca, like he's one of the few firms and people that I feel like globally is really making an impact at a relatively young age at a significant level, and you, it's such a rare thing. If you look at almost every other creative industry, there's just so much more kind of transformation constantly, and that's it's a big reason why we even started the pool product in the first place was. Us as a young office, especially back then, and certainly even now and probably for the next few years, like we're not going to get, you don't, you can't sit there and wait for a client to offer you something like that. I think architecture is funny that it's somewhere, I mean, it's a service industry, but it also in a way you're putting out a product. So it's this weird thing where you're waiting for someone to offer you a chance to put out an ideal product, <laughs> as opposed to, let's say, a product industry, like a fashion industry or an industrial design industry, you just put out a product. And if it sells or not, that's where the success comes from you can't really do that as much as an architect because obviously putting out a product at $100 million is hard to do. Hmm. But that's kind of the ideal at at the core of it, why of the plus pool anyway, and some of how we'd like to see the industry moving in some level. Can you actually put out a design and then have all the other stuff, all the funding, all the code, all the client bases, all the politics sort of be driven by the design or by the thing that you put out?
0: Yeah, it's a a weird one with architecture because... I'm not saying or and we're not necessarily saying that speed is better, but in architecture also, you know, just the time the amount of time that you need for a project and to get something actually built. Like by the time you design it, I remember back in the day with OMA and growing up, those were the most OMA and Herzog were the most exciting. They were at their peak and you would see them win the competitions, but by the time the building was already built, you kind of the architectural world was
2: almost already
0: over if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like mm. there's this discrepancy between the ideas and the actual built stuff. But then
2: there's also the case of like, I mean, Mm. there's just so much bad architecture. Like, I'm not, I'm not talking about the OMA Herzogs. Like that's, if everything was OMA Herzog, (laughs) it would be great. But, I mean, you look around the city and it's what, one out of a hundred buildings looks like they were even designed by an architect or, Actually, New York is probably an exception. Like, there's if you look at anywhere else in the U.S., like where one of the projects doesn't have a particularly good. No, I'm just saying. Like, there's much worse places as well. Like, we're hopefully starting a project in San Diego actually for a big, not a big. It's a 40 home housing development, like individual homes. It's basically a suburb, but it's a really interesting premise and a really interesting brief. But and it's it's the client has a huge environmental agenda, which is why he he found us and why we were excited about it. But immediately we were like, why you know, the kind of classic suburb you see across the US, that's more or less where I grew up. It's probably where at least half the nation, if not more, lives in. Why does it seem like the whole entire architecture profession that we know anyway just sort of ignores it? It's not really on the radar of things that people want to change or do. And yet it's such a huge effect on how people live and grow up and know about architecture and understand space and have an effect with a house and a relationship with a home. And it's all these things where you look around, and like, developer-driven projects are really depressing. And Oftentimes, like iconic architecture projects are really depressing. (laughs) Is there something that like, I don't know if it's profession based or just I feel like there has to be something within the profession that is causing that to a certain degree.
0: So my goal in life would be to find a different kind of less offensive standard for drop ceilings. That would that, that, that would make that would make me so incredibly happy if I or someone else does it. I don't care, but just like someone, please,
1: <laughs> that could lead your Wikipedia page and tell you.
0: Yeah, it's so amazing to me how how standardized it is everywhere. I go in every single office building you can think in this country, and it's gonna have a drop. And if it was just office buildings, that would be amazing. But I think that in itself would make me so happy. <laughs>
1: Sorry, I think because it is so difficult to actually come up with an idea and then find support for it in architecture mm-hmm. and the direction using it being the other way, it is hard to affect change through these larger, almost systemic projects like suburban developments or something like that. But the plus pool is also an interesting example because of its crowdfunding, use of crowdfunding in the process of design. So do you guys feel that crowdfunding is a viable form for architectural innovation or architectural practice? That's a good question. Short answer is
2: yes. A long answer is I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. A long answer is no. No, but I, I think yes, in principle. I don't know how it gets there quite yet because I don't think it's there yet. I like, for example, we don't we're not doing purely crowdfunding anymore. We're doing crowdfunding. We're doing philanthropic. We're doing worse for capital. Our plan is to go after I think um, local and, and city and state funding for capital construction. You know, so it's a kind of combination of different types of funding. What I will say is, without Kickstarter or without crowdfunding, and in a larger extent sounds dumb but without the internet you know we would not have been able to do plus pool period you know we wouldn't have been able to do it certainly in the way we're doing it 10 years ago
0: i was gonna um, say is there a different way we can just say crowd support <laughs> like the funding definitely helped us especially it had to it had kickstart actually <laughs> the project like the first test and and the you know, the amount of time we put in in the beginning wouldn't have been possible without the funding for sure. But the capital cost isn't coming from crowdfunding and I don't think it has to. But the project wouldn't be anywhere it is today if it wasn't for our support that we actually got from right. people.
2: I mean, if you get a quarter million dollars from crowdfunding, you have a quarter million dollars more leverage than you did before, whether it's political or getting more funding or, or social or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Having said that also, like it seems like crowdfunding for all sorts of other things, doesn't really show any signs of slowing down. And it actually slow, it seems like it's becoming more commonplace and sort of just more a part of the economics of how things get made, right? I mean, Kickstarter, what, surpassed NEA a few years ago in terms of amount it raised for the arts in the country, which is pretty insane. And so, like, I feel like inevitably you'll see a crowdfunded building. And I I think, you know, depending on what that scale may be. So I don't don't necessarily, I think it's a yes kind of down the road. What the mechanics are of getting there at the moment, I'm not totally sure yet.
0: But the most important part I feel in the whole process is that people become aware of their environment or they they feel they have a right to say something about the environment the same way they don't kickstarter with products right they're like oh i like this i want it i believe in it so i'm going to pay for it in a similar way i think with some of these crowdfunded projects people feel like oh i you know this would really make my neighborhood better this would make my city better this would make a difference in how i raise my child here etc etc or just change the affect the quality of life and i think that in, in an ideal scenario for me the fact that people would be Become more involved and aware of their environment and feel they have a right to have a say, an active say in that, and mm-hmm. affect the environment in which, you live, in which they live. I mean, that would be the biggest kind mm-hmm. of benefit. Because money, if that you know, if you have if you have people support and dedication, or if if there's a real interest and or need for something, you can find the money. But it's really most important that you can make that difference at a quality of life level. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think actually one of the most interesting things about You know, Kickstarter is a part of it, but also just now that we're in this kind of like social media age and and communicating with people, is architects are either forced to or now have an opportunity to actually talk to people at a much earlier stage in a project than they did before. And architects I think are just notoriously very bad at that. Like they're very bad, I think, at communicating ideas on a public level or clearly or in a level that makes any relevant sense to anybody besides architects or their client, and maybe not even their client. So I think that I feel like We'll definitely see a change in how what the role of the architect is and how how communicative the architect needs to be, which I think is huge. I think architects always want to be kind of part of that civil conversation, and now there's ways to be that or mm-hmm. part of it.
0: At the time, I think the pool was the largest crowdfunded public project, project civic yeah. project. I'm sure that probably must have changed meanwhile.
1: But that's I think that kind of ties into why certain things on Kickstarter can work so well and can surpass NEA funding is that you have these this item that is not at all self-contained by nature of the fact that it filters water, but like it is a it is an image that people understand. It's accessible. It seems as if it's almost like a product. Mm-hmm. And I think that if anything like the public awareness that comes or at least the virality or whatever that comes out of sharing something through a platform like Kickstarter could be leveraged by other publicly funded projects. I mean that would be maybe a way to kind of have the cake it too. But I think that a lot of these projects would otherwise perhaps find a different forum for discussion and for sharing, and that would be architectural exhibitions. We had a really super popular exhibition in Los Angeles a couple of years ago called the Never Built LA Exhibition, which collected a bunch of projects from Early 20th century, mid 20th century, Los Angeles, a few also a bit later. Um, of all these projects, very pie in the sky, amazing, mm-hmm. very drastic, often projects that were, of course, never actually realized, but often the but the reasoning wasn't always the same. Sometimes it was just, you know, too, this is too crazy of a project or the funding fell out or something like that. But for you in particular, and imagining something like the plus pool as a, in a historical context, If the internet weren't the platform that it is, would you have brought this to an architectural exhibition platform to try to get it out? Is there do you feel that there's a value in that kind of setting? Nobody actually asked
2: that before. I don't know to be honest.
0: Yeah, I don't know either. I think it might. Well, I think we're always aware that the. Project wouldn't be where it is today or possible without it having happened at that time in in at a specific moment in time and in this place like in New York specifically just because of the large amount of New York centric media and because New Yorkers just like to talk about themselves. But that being said, I don't know if we necessarily would have brought it to probably. I mean, if that would have been the only way to put it out there, maybe. But I also
2: wouldn't have expected to ever get any feedback from that. Well, I think part of it is also, and this is maybe my own problem, is thinking about exhibitions, oftentimes I think about it more like... That's where projects
0: go to die. Well,
2: no, (laughs) it's like, you know, it's an exhibition of an archive of some kind. It's an exhibition of something that happened, not using it as a thing to basically promote or start an idea. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, that often exhibitions are in some ways have a casualty of the long game as well and that they're often retrospective right. or looking at and, and analyzing an historical period right and, and I mean, it might I
2: mean, be a thin line but like i could have we might have gone maybe we create like a showroom for it which is basically an exhibition about the project but something like just even that maybe should do more of that. but just uh like changing what the point of that use of that gallery space would be it's not just showing the project the point is it actually like sell the project basically on, a, on a, some
0: level or engage the the public I, th- I will say with the pool specifically it wasn't necessarily architecture magazines or, or blogs or whatever picking it up but first and foremost it was just like new york-centric media hmm. and we also learned the value of reaching out to other worlds because at the end of the day by presenting I think the the discourse within the profession is super important but I think at the end of the day just talking to other architects or just referencing the architecture world only gets you so far like you're not actually you know going to get necessarily projects out of there but also like it wouldn't necessarily help launch the project versus you talk to communities or politicians or people who have a vested interest in that project happening in their courtyard mm-hmm. I think that's what in a way can yeah I think I was trying to think of like if it's basically sorry it's I think the larger the bigger the audience the better and I think the more limited to certain to certain spectrum I think the yeah yeah
2: If there was a way to do an exhibition, or maybe another way to look at it is if we didn't have internet, I think we would have tried to look at some form of medium, whether it's exhibition or postcard or newspaper or something that was broad and certainly was not basically architectural in that sense, or at least strictly architectural.
0: Actually something that very few people know is when we did the so when we had the idea of the pool we we got together with Play Labs, Archie and Jeff who are friends of ours. So they're a graphic design company and we engaged their help to put together a website and we also did a poster of the pool, which is still my favorite graphic probably. And a hard for it. like a
2: hard cup, like and, a and hard copy print book.
0: Yeah, and a print book, a very small one. And on the back of that print book, we said we are looking for engineers.
2: It was like water engineer, like filter guys. Like it was a whole <laughs> list of of disciplines that half of them don't really exist. We just didn't know what we were looking for.
0: Yeah, <laughs> so we did actually mail. So in parallel to the digital, the point was in parallel to the digital campaign although it was hardly a campaign we also mailed out uh quite a few hard copies of these books and posters to i guess mostly engineering companies and universities and things like that i don't know if we ever heard back from any of them we did.
2: no one of the okay. first people we talked to was josh oh. we sent one to the highline Oh. Okay. and i think actually highline was the first person to call because of the book. Hmm. I mean, sorry, they went for the first person to call, they called, they were the first one to respond to the book. And what I remember it is, the reason they said was because the book itself was designed really nicely and the envelope was written really nicely. <laughs> like, I think I, I, without thinking, I sort of, it was something really silly, like I'd underlined the name Highline or something, and they're like, oh, we really like the underline. And I was like, man, <laughs> that got us in the door, <laughs> that was complete chance. But it was funny because it was actually the first time we'd ever met Josh and and Josh David, who is one of the two founders of the Highline, who's now on our board. But that was, you know, early days, like within the first month of the pool project. Met him, he was super nice. But his the main takeaway was this will take you ten years, guys. Make sure you're committed, make sure you want to do this, and that was it. And of course Archie and I left. We're like, <laughs> He's old. Okay. <laughs> we'll do it in like three. And of course, now we're on six and it's really a 10 year project. And But it's amazing that it came full circle when Josh is a part of it now.
1: So I have to ask as well about Kanye as a client. And I'm sure you guys have, of course, fielded these questions like too many times to count. <laughs> um, but what I'm interested in particularly is having a client at such a stature what effect that that can have on your firm and just on your feeling of who you are in the field. Did having Kanye as a client make a major difference in how you actually ran your practice?
0: Interesting question.
2: (laughs) I don't know about how
1: we ran our practice. Or how you cater the project to that client.
0: No, not on that level. I think if on any level, the influence is more on the sense that it's kind of what we learned from him in the sense that the way he works on music, he he's a very collaborative character, obviously. And the way he works on music, bringing all these different people together, he works similarly on every other aspect. Like the working on something like the stage, it's about the music coming together with the set design, coming together with the choreography, with everything. And I think that that kind of mixed media or like just general collaboration between people is something that we always thought was interesting and we were exposed to through him and we definitely learned uh, a lot Mm -hmm. like that so i think i think that there was definitely an exchange and a learning process there but i think it probably a different way than initially expected
2: i think it definitely opened us up to a lot a lot more stuff than we would have been exposed to obviously without someone like kanye especially on a kind of material level and just kind of quality level in a lot of ways in terms of material and and space and stuff. And the other thing I think I noticed it did in terms of how we work is it actually sped us up or at least it made us, it made us less precious about let's say crafting a kind of perfectly crafted deliverable to send to a client. And it doesn't work with every collaborator we work with or every client we work with, but there's a few Kanye included Virgil, who's very good friends with Kanye and who's the owner of Off-White, the brand in Hong Kong that we built a store for. They're very like, they're always in a hundred things at once. They're very loose and, I don't know if facile is right, but they're they're able to kind of process a billion things. So it does not work to say like, okay, we're going to see you in a month. Let's sit down for a four-hour meeting. By that point, they're already on to something. You're already on to like 10 other things. So it's actually, we've started working in a way that we really just produce an idea, send it over, talk about it. And it's very kind of fluid. And it's actually been really nice.
0: But that's mostly because we're talking about a very, 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 very particular case in which it's more of a collaboration. It's not like you go present a ready object. Like we're, you know, that, that that was in a way the whole point. It, it is all about collaborating and discussing ideas and pushing them further. But I was going to say, it's also, and I mean, even within the office,
2: himself. when we talk yeah. to, like when we work within the office, like we've gotten less reliant on, I think, formal presentation, yeah. which is nice, I think. Yeah. Like we can, we can, it's like just screen grab it and, and let's look at it. Like, don't worry about, making a really pretty thing. Let's talk about the idea before we worry about what the refined version is. And that's actually really nice.
1: So this is a question we like to ask our guests just as kind of a way to continually branch out both the community and the media that influences the community of architecture. But are you guys reading or listening to or watching anything right now that you want to share?
0: Architecture related?
1: Anything related? Okay. Okay. Good.
0: Thank God. <laughs> really, yeah. No, I I do read a lot, and for me, reading is something quite quite important. But it always changes. Now I'm reading Kundera. Life is elsewhere. That's my my subway book. And then on my uh, night table, I have like three books that are constant constant rotation. One is Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir. I'm probably halfway through. <laughs> And then there's uh, Eugenio Nasco, which is a Romanian um, playwright who lived in Paris, uh, the rhinoceros. I think those are the two that are kind of still lingering on the night table right now. Listening, I don't know, it's always changing. I've been listening to a lot of old, by old I mean 90s, music.
1: <laughs> American music.
0: Yeah. Like, Pop music. You know, Nirvana, Guns N' Roses, things like that. Well, also even like 70s or like, I don't know, in general, just like older stuff. That probably says a lot. <laughs> but yeah, that's probably it pretty much. Don looks very desperate. I huh? can say what he's watching. He's he's watching okay. Dane Reynolds' surf videos. He's watching yeah. a lot of Arsenal games, if you want to call those games. Yeah, I was going
2: to say, I'm going to sound like an idiot after Kawana's list of fancy sounding books, which I have none of. Uh, yeah, so one is Dane Reynolds, who's a, who's a surfer, and he has a site called marine layer productions, although I think it might be kind of defunct now. Anyway, he, he, they, he just posts surf video clips, but they're usually, what's nice is they're usually much less slick and much more raw and actually much kind of simpler and shorter than your sort of surf video that was coming out a lot lately. Are you a surfer? Yes, but honestly, probably more was. I grew up surfing in California. In New York, I surf very rarely, much more rare than I would hope. So I cling on to whatever small Piece of surfing, I can cling on to.
0: He said with a sad voice. <laughs> oh,
2: sad voice. That's my biggest regret of ever getting an architecture. <laughs> Why blame surfing. architecture? It's not architecture as well. It's easy to blame he architecture. He used to
0: also drum. He also gave that up for, for architecture. architecture.
1: <laughs> so oh, so wow. it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> never too late. It's never too late. Combine all those three things.
2: Otherwise, I've been pretty, like, I'm always constantly amazed by. Last Week Tonight, that John Oliver Show. Like, I just watch old episodes, like, over and over again. It's like, oh, well, it'd be so fun to work for that show and just be, like, a research on that show. It's pretty insane.
1: I always think one of the best jobs for those type of both satirical or also real, like, John Oliver Show, for those types of news shows is to be simply a graphical artist who gets to create all of the wacky collages uh-huh. that they use <laughs> yeah. to put together either fake or real news because they're that's always fun. they're
2: always so spot on. And it's funny because like, you know, we'll try to sometimes do like graphic diagrams or collages or something in the office to explain an idea and it never really works. And you always see like on the shows that they're just so perfect.
1: Well, I think you found your next collaborator. Yeah, that's true. It's a good point.
0: I have a <laughs> we have a good friend actually that we met back in the uh Rex days and he's uh, studying art at Rutgers. I think he's in a painting program, I'm going to say. But anyway, one of their assignments for a sculpture class was to do a comedy stand up. And I love that it was, I was I'm was. i still such, in awe. like they literally went to like clubs. 12 of them
2: or something yeah, yeah, like
0: so. they had to sign up for legit clubs in New York and actually go on the stage and actually do that. And I thought that's so awesome to do yeah. that. Sorry, I don't know how we ended up here. But no, but that's
1: <laughs> After that, any type of sculpture crit is probably the, the least like, terrifying right. thing you've but, ever been to. Yeah. That sounds like a big deal breaker for a lot of people in, <laughs> in that practice who might have gotten into it to not have to ever speak to anyone again.
2: Sculptured. Sculptured. Sculptured not
1: me. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for talking with me today. This is really great to learn a little bit more about the firm and and hear both of your perspectives. So thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah,
2: thank you. Thanks for party. having
0: us.
1: Thanks for listening to Archonnex Sessions One to One with Iwana Stanescu and Dongping Wong of Family. Dani Lovoinov edits the podcast and Matt Skillings composed our music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of One to One. New episodes come out every Monday. Make sure to not miss an episode by subscribing to us on iTunes. And if you like the podcast, please consider leaving us a review. You can keep up with podcasting news from Archonnex on Twitter through at ArchSessions or hashtag Sessions, or you can email us through connect at archonnex.com. Thanks again for listening to One to One.